0: Hi, my name is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. The book of Matthew is the only one of the three synoptic gospels that records what Jesus went on to say next on the Mount of Olives regarding His return and the end of this age. When teaching on the Olivet Discourse, many teachers stop at the end of chapter 24. Although in Matthew Jesus moves on to teach through the use of parables, the subject matter is the same— There is no reason to think the words Jesus spoke in chapter 25 of Matthew took place at any other time or anywhere else. Jesus had no idea anyone would divide what he was saying into two different chapters some 1,500 years after he said it. The topics discussed in chapter 25 of Matthew are tied to the preceding chapter and the rest of the Olivet Discourse to the extent that if you don't understand the context is the end of the age— you will misinterpret the passages in Matthew 25 after the final admonition to be watchful the gospel of Mark moves on to talk about the plot to kill Jesus in Mark chapter 14 the book of Luke ends chapter 21 by saying that Jesus continued to teach in the temple by day and take lodging likely camping on the mount of olives at night that's found in Luke 21:37 the garden of gethsemane sits at the base of the mount of olives that of course is where jesus was taken captive prior to his execution well here's matthew chapter 25 verse 1 at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins which took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom at that time or in some translations then is referring to the specific time in the future that jesus has been talking about his return to earth the end of this current age the time that he's bringing his kingdom of heaven to this earth. This statement is part of why we can be sure that chapter 25 is part of the Olivet Discourse. We've just been talking about a specific time, the time of the end. Without missing a beat, Matthew goes on to say, at that time. Not something like, and then Jesus did such and such, or the next day the disciples went out. Nope, we're talking about the same time we've been talking about. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus referred to, is not how the kingdom of heaven always will be, but is meant to illustrate what it will be like at that time, meaning at the time the kingdom of heaven comes to this earth. We know that this is a parable containing symbolism and not to be taken literally because Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. To properly understand this parable, it's necessary to define who all of the characters are in the implied wedding that we're talking about, like the virgins, the bridegroom, and the wedding itself. Then, although the parable does not directly mention the bride, we can ask, who might the bridegroom be marrying? But even before we attempt to identify who the symbolic characters stand for, we can learn a great deal. So let's do so by moving on. Matthew 25, verse 2. And five of them were foolish, and five were wise. In the last podcast, we saw that Jesus had just told a similar parable where the master, who he identified as Jesus, had returned to his servants. He found that some were wise, and some had been foolish. That theme seems to continue here, as he relays that the virgin in this parable, yet to be identified by us, are made up of two groups, the wise and the foolish. Here's verse 3 to 5. Those that were foolish took their lamps, but didn't take any oil with them. But the wise took oil in their containers with their lamps. While the bridegroom took his time, they all laid down and fell asleep. The simplest way to look at this statement is that the wise are prepared and have made themselves ready for the return of the bridegroom. The foolish, although they had lamps, took no fuel for them and were not prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. Both the foolish and the wise fell asleep. Falling asleep could imply that some time passes before the bridegroom returns. People fall into routines, life goes on, and they grow weary watching for an event that they're unsure will even occur. This may be especially true after 2,000 years have passed and the bridegroom, or master, has still not come. Here's verse 6 to 10. And halfway through the night, a cry went out, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. Then the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. But the wise answered, saying, No, there might not be enough for you and us. Better that you go and buy some for yourselves from those that sell. And when they left to make their purchase, the bridegroom came. And those that were prepared went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Upon the return of the one they'd been waiting for, the bridegroom, The wise virgins seem unwilling to give up what will allow them to go out and meet the bridegroom. That was their, quote, oil, unquote. The message here, unless each individual is prepared on their own, they will not be able to meet the one they're waiting on. There will be no sharing of lamps or oil. The door was shut implies that there is a finite period of time to make it into the wedding feast. There will come a day when it's too late to prepare, and the unprepared will not make it in. There will not be a second chance for anyone left behind to make it into this feast. As we see in the next verse, if you're not ready when the bridegroom returns, you're just out of luck. This is Matthew 25 verses 11 to 13. Afterwards, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Believe it when I tell you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, because you don't know the day nor hour when the Son of Man will come. Those who were not prepared to meet the bridegroom were left out in the cold. The strong and clear command to be watchful and prepared concludes the parable. So, let's talk about the various interpretations of this parable that have been floating around out there for years. I've heard all of these, and I'm sure there's more. Some have assumed that this parable is talking about Jesus, the bridegroom, coming to claim his future wives or virgins, as though he intends on marrying a harem. (laughs) This interpretation would seem at least partially consistent with the imagery found elsewhere in the Bible, where Jesus is the groom and the church, made up of many people, is the bride. This parable then would represent Jesus returning to earth for his bride, the church, and taking her away via the rapture. However, as we've seen, not all the virgins are ready when the groom comes for them. Some get left behind. Well, Next, if you're drawn to the more Pentecostal-type beliefs, then you may be sure that the five virgins who have oil for their lamps are born-again and spirit-filled believers who have all given evidence that they are saved by speaking in tongues. Jesus, he, of course, is the bridegroom, and the five virgins whom he takes away, rescuing them from tribulation, corporately make up his bride. The oil mentioned is symbolic for the Holy Spirit of God. Having their lamps full of oil is symbolic for being full of the Holy Spirit. Continuing with this interpretation, the five foolish virgins who are left behind are those people who are perhaps Christian in name only. Or maybe they are even those who have prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus as their Savior, but they have not been filled with the Spirit. This group qualifies as being set apart as virgins, but not being spirit-filled. They have left their vessel of empty oil and are just not ready to meet the bridegroom. If you don't consider yourself a Pentecostal, but do believe that there are those people in the world who are Christian in name only, you may favor this next theory. Some think that the five virgins who get taken away by the bridegroom are actual born-again followers of Christ who truly know Him as their Lord. The other five virgins, who have no oil, are only Christians in the sense that the United States is a Christian nation. If this is similar to your interpretation of this parable, you'll probably still interpret the oil as representing the Holy Spirit of God, but you'd say that anyone who is truly a Christian has the Holy Spirit inside of them, whether or not they are emotional and animated in their worship style or speak in tongues. The next interpretation of this parable is a hybrid version of the above theories. It says that all the virgins actually are Christians, but the ones who are without oil are in a state of backsliding. The foolish virgins, according to this theory, would include Sunday morning saints, Saturday night sinners, if you've ever heard that. Being a Christian worthy of being taken by the bridegroom would largely be works or behavior based. The foolish virgins in this theory are not watching for the Lord's return. They're the ones who are not walking with God. When Jesus returns, He will rescue those who are serious about the relationship with Him and will leave those other poor excuses of Christians behind to discipline them. He'll sort of whip them into shape so they'll too be worthy after they've been tried by fire. Hopefully during the time that God pours out His wrath on the earth according to this theory, These second-class Christians will come to their senses and turn towards God. This theory, and the one before it, reads like a very popular series of end-times fiction books and movies you might have read, or at least heard of. Of course, there are any number of other versions of this parable that fall in between the ones I just mentioned, but there are some who would be disappointed if I didn't mention one more. There are those that believe that this parable is a complete proof that Christians can lose their salvation. Eternal life, according to this school of thought, is actually a temporary life for those who don't continue to meet up to God's standards. Eternal life, then, is based on a set of conditions. Although Jesus saves you, once you're saved, retaining your salvation is highly dependent on your actions. The five virgins whose lamps have gone out, according to this theory, are those Christians who once knew salvation but have lost it because they just are not good enough. Jesus didn't leave them. They left Jesus, or so the theory goes. Haley's Bible commentary on this passage cuts through all the details and simply states that, We should keep our minds on the Lord and be ready when He comes. Although I think Haley oversimplifies when he says, This parable means just one thing. I completely agree with the principle he states here. We should keep our minds on the Lord and be ready when He comes. I also agree for the most part with the concept mentioned in the theories I just passed on to you that there are many Christians in name only. They will indeed be left behind. However, I'd stop short of agreeing that, quote, bad Christians, unquote, will be left behind. A bad Christian, in this sense, is a label that a legalistic and judgmental person would place on someone who's chosen by God for salvation, but that continues to struggle with behavioral issues or sin. If we're being honest, we all struggle with sin to different degrees. I don't agree at all that Christians can lose their salvation if they were elected to God for salvation in the first place. When God does save, He really saves, regardless of our actions from moment to moment. The blood of Jesus does not wear off, and He would never sell us back into slavery. Jesus purchased the elect with His blood, and He never asked for His blood back for someone. With all this being said, other than in a general sense that we should all be watchful for the return of Jesus, I'm not convinced that the church, the elect of God, has anything to do with any of the ten virgins mentioned in the parable. To understand what this parable of the ten virgins is talking about, it's important to understand a few key things. First, the term virgin as used in the parable. Next, the first century Jewish wedding ritual. And third, finally, who are the key characters represented in this story? Even though the versions of scripture translated from the Greek indicate that this parable does not mention a bride, that there is a bride is always implied in the case of a wedding. The Peshitta, which is the Aramaic Bible used by the Church of the East, actually says that the ten virgins go out and meet the bridegroom and the bride. The Church, as we think of it today, did not exist when Jesus spoke this parable. Because of this, it's not completely without controversy that the church may be the bride in this parable. Paul indirectly refers to the church as the bride of Christ in Second Corinthians 11.2. A strong scriptural case from elsewhere in the Bible can also be made supporting the idea that the church is the bride. Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 tells us, And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Elsewhere, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, we read, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the Holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. These passages go on to describe a beautiful and enormous awe-inspiring city. On the surface, one may say, Wait a minute, (laughs) the bride is a city called the New Jerusalem. And that would be true. However, a city is so much more than brick and mortar, or in this case, jasper and gold. A city is made up of inhabitants, It is the city's inhabitants which are mentioned a few verses later in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 to 5. Here they are. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be seen in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night, and they will need no candle, neither light of the sun, For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The city, referred to as the Bride of Christ, is made up of the servants of Jesus, the elect people of God from throughout the ages, the ecclesia, or called out ones. The inhabitants of the city are referred to as an actual part of the city, even to the extent that the name of the city will even be written on the followers of Christ. That is correct. (laughs) Revelation 3.12 tells us we're all getting tattooed. (laughs) Let me read that to you. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my new name. The elect of God who dwell in the temple of God, which is in the new Jerusalem, are said to be the bride of Christ. There's no doubt that Christ is the bridegroom mentioned in the Revelation scripture and in the parable of the ten virgins. It could be no other. He is the Son of Man mentioned at the end of the parable. John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the bridegroom when he said, You yourselves bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He, hath the bride, is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. That's found in the book of John chapter 3. Verses 28 to 29. We can also be fairly certain that the wedding feast referred to in the parable is the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. This wedding feast will take place after the return of Jesus. Here is that passage And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he says unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. That's found in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. So, if Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride, who are the virgins with the lamps in Matthew chapter 25? Some would say that the church plays both the part of the bride and and the wedding guests in this parable. But why stop there? After all, it could be argued that the church is also the body of Christ. Wouldn't that make the church the bridegroom too? To see the church as all, or more than one, character in this parable does not make sense. In his book titled End Times Events, author Charles Caps tries to argue just that. In one paragraph, he makes the case that the church is the body of Christ. In the next paragraph, he argues that the church is the five virgins with oil in their lamps. The only character in the story he says the church is not is the bride. (laughs) Well, maybe the meaning of this parable was never meant to be taken this far. Maybe the simple message of being watchful is the only message for sure. But if nothing else other than to show you, that perhaps others are a bit off in their specific interpretations of who the virgins are, let's consider another interpretation. So, next time you hear someone matter-of-factly using the parable of the ten virgins to support their end-time scenario, there's a few things that you should consider. If we are to understand who the virgins are, the opening words of this parable cannot be overlooked. The phrase, At that time is talking about the future time of Jesus' return. It's the time on which almost his entire discourse has focused. Jesus did a lot of teaching about the kingdom of heaven. During Jesus' day, and still in our day, the kingdom of heaven was and is still centered in heaven and not on this earth. The true followers of Jesus can be considered citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but... The status of those citizens is that they are currently aliens living in a foreign land. Besides those of us who have been spiritually reborn into it, the kingdom of heaven currently is found in the spiritual realm, literally in heaven, and not on this earth. The answer Jesus gave Pilate when he was asked about his kingdom was that it was not of this world. That is still true today. One day, the day that Jesus is referring to when he says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be physically expanded to this earth. It will be the literal and completely realized answer to the prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be undergoing rapid and drastic expansion-related changes as its king, Jesus, comes to this planet in power and glory. Jesus' kingdom will then include a physical world, which will be in need of physical human beings worthy of inhabiting it. Nowhere in the parable does it state or even imply that any one, five, or ten virgins represents the bride of Christ. That's a major assumption made in some of the theories I talked about. What kind of wedding would that be? Can you imagine being one of the lucky five virgins on your wedding night, Yes, polygamy was allowed in the Jewish culture in Jesus' day, but it was frowned on and not commonly practiced. It's extremely unlikely that Jesus would have been implying in this story that the bridegroom had the intentions of coming for ten brides and then settled for five. If that were the case, I think we would have read something in the scriptures, something like, Master, five brides? This is a hard teaching to understand, (laughs) What manner of man could accomplish this, or even want to? However, we don't read anything of the sort. To understand the role of the different characters involved in this parable, we must understand that there are more than one sub-storylines taking place in the New Testament. Jesus is the key character in all of them. One storyline concerns the fulfillment of the promises of God to the natural line of the descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob commonly known as the Jews. Another storyline involves the expansion of the kingdom of heaven to include the church. Many times, these stories are so intertwined that there is no difference. One storyline is dependent on the other. Jesus is the central character that ultimately ties the story all together. However, sometimes there are at least two distinct storylines. What we find in this parable is the interaction of characters from both storylines. This parable represents the coming together of what God is going to be doing with the Jews during the end of the age, and what will be occurring with the ecclesia, the church. They're both represented, although the church, or the bride, is not the focus, and is not specifically even mentioned. The focus is clearly on those who will be physically inhabiting the kingdom of heaven, at that time, as it arrives on this earth. Dispensationalists, remember, are those who have diced up God's story into different periods according to how He's dealt with humans. God used to deal directly with the Jews, now He primarily is interested in His church. They've even parsed out what scriptures apply to the church as opposed to the Jews. Many dispensationalists demand that the Olivet Discourse was intended for the Jews, They believe that Jesus spoke the words recorded there only to his Jewish disciples to pass on to future generations of Jews. Dicing scripture up this way helps them make their case for a pre-tribulation rapture. They believe that the message of the Olivet Discourse is specifically given to the Jews of the end of the age who will inherit the earthly kingdom of God. Further, they believe that the passage has nothing to do with the church and is of little value to modern-day disciples of Christ. It's sort of strange how, when many dispensationalists go to chapter 25 of Matthew, that they start reading the church back into things like being the virgins in this parable, or later on, how the sheep and goats judgment pertains to the church. I will concede that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and they were all Jews when Jesus called them. But at the point of following Christ, Even though they continued on with their Jewish traditions, and even though they were still ethnically Jews, they, by definition, became the first Christians. The Olivet Discourse was for them. God did not rewrite the script for planet Earth's past and future when He revealed His mystery that the Gentile people could be saved. He only allowed us to see what He had planned all along. As for me, I'll continue to apply a uniform set of hermeneutics. I'll attempt to determine if Jesus is singling out and focusing on any group of people in Scripture. Although the Olivet Discourse has much to say to both Christian and Jews, if the Jews were to even listen to the words of Jesus now, in the case of the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus does appear to be getting specific about the righteous descendants of the nation of Israel. Some Christians try to see the church in many places in Scripture in which they just don't belong. This is almost the opposite of those who think much of what's written in the Gospels is only intended for the Jews. Sometimes it's a confusing mix of both. Seems to be a lot of interpretation of Scripture by what's convenient to believe. When interpreting the book of Revelation, for example, some say John symbolically stands for the church, where John goes in the book is symbolic for where the church goes in prophecy. They say John, being called up to heaven in his Revelation vision, is symbolic for the church being raptured to heaven. Some say the 24 elders seen in Revelation by John represent the church. Others say that the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 represent the church. Many believe that the Holy Ones, who ride to Armageddon with Jesus to defeat the Antichrist forces are the church. Replacement theology is the theory that claims that the church now inherits everything the Jews were promised in the Old Testament, and the Jews don't. According to this theory, the church is able to do so because the Jews blew it. They blew it with God by continuing to turn their back on Him, and ultimately rejecting and crucifying their Messiah, Jesus. An example of replacement theology and prophecy would be where some say the 144,000 descendants of Israel mentioned in Revelation are representative of the church. Replacement theology was an especially popular theory before the nation of Israel was reborn in 1948. Prior to that time, many people couldn't even imagine how the promises made by God to the Jews could ever possibly be literally realized. They decided that the church must have taken national Israel's place. Still others have not said that they don't see the church anywhere after the first three chapters in the book of Revelation. Many interpretations would have the church playing two or more different parts at the same time. There is indeed much confusion as to the role of the church and Israel. What's essential to realize is that we need to be extremely careful not to superimpose the church over the top of what God is really trying to tell us. God's plan is complex, and we need to recognize that there are more factors involved than just what's happening with the church. God is dealing with several different groups—the elect, the world, the nation of Israel, the unseen spiritual realm, Satan, and the Antichrist. Remember, like we talked about in a previous podcast, we, either as individual called-out ones, the ecclesia, or as the corporate church— are not the center of the universe. The Bible is not written about us. Jesus is the star of the show, and there are many things going on around him. In the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation, at the same time we see the church show up in heaven, there's a separate group of 144,000 people that have descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are mentioned. It names them specifically by their tribes, there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. This group's storyline continues to play out on planet Earth after the church has been removed from it. Another important factor in understanding the parable of the ten virgins is understanding a little bit about the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. A first century Jewish wedding is nothing like what we 21st century North Americans now think of as a wedding. However, they're not so different that the Jewish wedding included ten brides. Several commentaries refer to the ten virgins in the parable as maidens. Those commentaries suppose that the virgins are female bridesmaids whose job it is to attend the bride and make sure she's ready for the wedding feast. However, unless the groom already had the bride with him, which would have been unusual, he would not have come to collect the bridesmaids, The groom coming to pick up ten female virgins who were friends of his fiancée would have been improper. The Greek word used for virgins in this scripture is parthenoi. This word is used for virgin throughout the New Testament, whether the person they are talking about is male or female. The 144,000 descendants of Israel that I referred to earlier are said to be virgins. Listen to this scripture from Revelation 14.4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, Parthenoi. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." It's assumed that the virgins, parthenoi, in this passage are males, since they have not defiled themselves with women. Most of the usage of this word in the New Testament refers to female virgins. However, the exact same form of the word, parthenoi, is used in both the Revelation passage I just read you, as it refers to males, and the Olivet Discourse passage we're looking at now. It's always necessary to look at factors such as culture and context to decide on how to properly understand this and every other word we're attempting to translate. There's a strong possibility that the ten virgins in this parable are males, just like they are in the Revelation passage concerning the 144,000. The fact that there are ten of these special wedding guests described as virgins would be no surprise to a first century Jew. Anything important like a wedding that was done in public was done in the presence of at least ten people. In fact, many public matters had to be established in the presence of ten male witnesses. This is a Jewish Talmudic oral tradition. Talmudic tradition defined the culture of Jesus' day. There's a biblical example of this practice in the book of Ruth, chapter 4. In his book, The Essential Talmud, Author Aidan Steinsaltz writes in regards to the first-century Jewish marriage ceremony that a wedding involved two different stages as far as the legal procedure. First was the betrothal. Secondly, in the presence of ten male adults, the man would bring his wife under a canopy which would symbolize his home. It is then that the bride would become his wife. It's expected that if the bridegroom was young that his ten male guests would be unwed virgins, as was the bridegroom. Despite this, beyond the commentaries, not to undermine your confidence in the English translations of the Bible, but there are several translations that unfortunately take the liberty to translate the word virgin as maiden. Like the commentaries, the study notes found in some Bibles will go so far as to say that these are bridesmaids. I don't know of a Bible translation that calls the virgins in this parable groomsmen. However, when you consider the culture of the day and how the disciples would have taken what Jesus was saying with their knowledge of first century Jewish wedding practices, groomsmen is the most likely way to accurately translate the word. I think they were groomsmen, but stuck with the more generic word virgin in my translation, just to be safe. The ten virgins are likely the traditional young unmarried male friends of the groom. The groom has no intention of marrying any one of these ten. He intends on them being witnesses and guests of the wedding feast. This was the tradition in the day that Jesus relayed this story to his disciples. The significance of determining the sex of the virgins is important when building a case for tying this scripture to scripture found elsewhere. Tying this scripture to other scriptures important to identify who the virgins in this parable symbolically represent. Hopefully, now we can say who the virgins are not. They are not the future brides of the groom. Why not just leave it simple and say that the virgins in this parable are the elect of God or the church? Why not just say Jesus is using the word virgins in the same sense that Paul does in 2 Corinthians eleven two? when he's writing of the church that has been set aside for Jesus, just as a bride would be. In my opinion, Jesus is specifically using a parable involving a wedding because he knows that there are several key characters involved and that each one has their specific roles. When we consider the cultural practice of Jesus' day, he's being specific that the bridegroom is coming for his friends who are found ready and worthy to be a part of the wedding celebration. It's very understandable how confusion can arise over this parable given the context of what Jesus is talking about, and that all of the interpretations I've talked about earlier don't take into consideration the first century culture of the Jews. Only a few sentences earlier, Jesus was talking about his second coming and the gathering of the elect from the four corners of the earth. At first glance, it would make sense that this parable has something to do with that event well, it does have everything to do with His second coming, but nothing to do with the specific gathering of the elect. As you'll recall, Revelation chapter 7, 9-17 gives us the scene after the sign of the sun, moon, stars, and earthquake has just occurred. Jesus has sent His angels to gather those that belong to Him to His presence. His followers, those who have come out of the tribulation, from, quote, every nation, tribe, and people, unquote, now find themselves raptured, standing before the throne of God in heaven, singing praises to God. The title of this group, who they are, the ones who stand before God in white robes, as far as this parable goes, is the Bride of Christ. Just before we see the Bride of Jesus show up in heaven in Revelation chapter 7, we see a completely different group, 144,000 Jewish males that are going to be left on earth, but sealed and saved from the wrath of God. I'll read you that passage. This is Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. We read in Revelation chapter 14 verse 4 that these Jewish male virgins follow Jesus wherever he goes. This is a distinct group apart from the church in prophecy. At the same time, we see the church raptured from the earth in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. We see this group of virgins sealed and left on the earth. I believe it's no accident that both the Olivet Discourse and the Revelation passages are, refer- are referring to male virgins, since my opinion is that both passages are talking about the same group of people. The sequence of events is too close in both passages to ignore. The sealing of these virgins comes at the same time that the bridegroom comes to the earth and the wedding feast is drawing close. Note in the Revelation passage that not every descendant of Israel is sealed at this future point in history, but only a finite group of 144,000. According to Romans chapter 11 verses 25 to 27, one day, all of Israel will be saved. As true as that is, God will ultimately define who all of Israel will include. The Old Testament book of Ezekiel is where I believe we first learn about how God will select 144,000 virgins. In chapter 8 of the book of Ezekiel, we'll read about God showing Ezekiel various abominations that were taking place in Jerusalem and at the temple itself. Many of these detestable things were happening at the hands of 70 of those who were thought to be the most trustworthy elders in the land. Turns out they weren't. In chapter 9 of Ezekiel, we read about God sending out individuals to impose His judgment on Jerusalem. However, just as it occurs in the book of Revelation, when the 144,000 are sealed, God's judgment on Jerusalem only takes place after God sends out one individual dressed in white linen, to place a mark on the foreheads of those who think the practices that have been taking place are detestable. Those who receive this mark are to be left unharmed. The rest, the young, the old, are to be slain. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1-7. to From the Old Testament stories, we know that the Jews had somewhat of a habit of turning to the worship of false gods, thereby engaging in the types of detestable activities described in Ezekiel. Those that know history also know that Jerusalem has fallen to foreigners on several occasions in the past. There have been many residents of that region who have been slain in association with those events. There appears to be several historical events that would qualify for fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecies. However, I again argue that the ultimate fulfillment, remember we talked about that way back, of many Ezekiel's prophecies are yet to take place in the future after the 144,000 descendants of the tribes of Israel have been supernaturally sealed. There's one thing that God considers detestable, which Ezekiel saw in his vision that is openly occurring today in Jerusalem. Anyone with access to the internet can see images of it taking place. This is how Ezekiel describes this detestable act in Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 15 to 16. Then he said to me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and you will see greater abomination than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the Temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they worship the sun towards the east. If you Google images of Muslims worshiping on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you will see pictures of far more than 25 men in the exact spot described by the above scriptures engaging in worship. You'll notice that all those engaged in worship are doing so with their backsides pointed at where the Holy of Holies traditionally once stood. To this day, where the temple stood, is still considered to be the most holy site in the world by the Jews. It's there where the one true God literally dwelled among men on this planet. Each day, only a few feet away from that spot, hundreds of Muslims turn their backs on where God once dwelled and bow to the east, worshipping a false god. Although the glory of God currently does not reside on the Temple Mount as it once did, the significance of these disturbing actions are obvious. Also significant is that the nation of Israel, which is primarily made up of God's chosen people, is allowing the worship of false gods to take place on the Temple Mount. Just as in Ezekiel's day, there are those individual Jews in Israel that find these types of practices to be detestable, just as God does. They are those that sigh and cry because of the abominations that are taking place. Although they may not yet be followers of the Messiah, Jesus, they are passionately devoted to their faith in their God. It's likely that it is this type of devout Jew that Ezekiel saw being sealed so as not to be harmed by the judgment of God. It's also likely that it will be this type of devout Jews that will make up the 144,000 virgins who will finally recognize Jesus as their Messiah and receive God's seal of protection at the time of His return. Two storylines come together at the second coming, the storyline of the Jews and the storyline of the church. Romans 11.25-26 tells us that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles coming in will be complete with the rapture of the church. All of Israel being saved will begin to be accomplished when God supernaturally seals and protects the people who will make up all of Israel from any further harm from the Antichrist and from God's coming wrath on the earth. That sealing will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation period. The hundred and forty four thousand Jews made up of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, represents all of Israel that will be saved. The fact that the 144,000 descendants will be followers of Jesus once He returns indicates that these are Jews that will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, Lord, and King. This group of Jews would meet the necessary criteria of having oil in their lamps. They are Jews that are ready to meet their Messiah, and master. Is the number 144,000 to be taken literally or figuratively, indicating a number of completeness? Is this really only a group of males, or could it include females? Maybe, as in other places in Scripture, only the males were counted because of the culture of that time, but it's assumed that females and children are to be included in addition to the number of males. Are we really talking about virgins in the normal sense, like they've never had sex? Or are we talking about figurative virgins, meaning they've never worshipped false gods? These are all great questions that are worthy of a chapter or two. Maybe in a different future book or podcast. I just don't have a quick answer right now. This group of Jews that have kept themselves pure will accept Jesus as their Messiah at His return. Why wouldn't this group of newly converted Messianic Jews, which are just as Christian as any other believer at that point, not be raptured with the rest of the church? After all, there is no Jew nor Greek in Christ Jesus. That's found in Colossians 3.11. The answer is that this group is probably saved or become followers of Jesus as a result of seeing their Messiah at His second coming, which occurs at the same time as the rapture. The Bible says that the Jews will look on the one whom they pierced and weep. Here's that scripture from Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness after his firstborn. Additionally, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. In other words, the 144,000 Jews will recognize who Jesus is, their Messiah, and what their ancestors did to him. With this knowledge, they'll repent and turn to him. This group will be kept on the earth because God has something special in mind for them. He made promises to their ancestors that must be kept. He made covenants with Abraham. This is the remnant of Israel that's going to inherit all the literal promises God made to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are documented in the Old Testament of the Bible. The idea that the identification of the virgins in the parable of the ten virgins is actually referring to descendants of Israel fits perfect with the idea that they once had oil in their lamps, but they let their lamps go out, and that all of them went to sleep. When you're a true follower of Christ, you can't lose your salvation. However, if you're a Jew, you can be unprepared to receive your Messiah and reject Him. This prophetic parable is a continuation of the Old Testament storyline of what will happen with the descendants of Israel, God's chosen people. It informs them as to what their status will be if they're faithful or not to God, and do or do not accept Jesus as their Messiah. What's this mean for the church? If what I've just said is true, what is the significance of this parable for the church? First, Even though the church may not be the virgins in the parable, we're still called to watch for Christ's return and be prepared just the same. This parable, like Old Testament stories, sets an example of correct behavior for the follower of Christ. Second, it's so important for followers of Jesus to recognize the fact that the descendants of Israel play a major part in the end of the age, just as the church does. However, they have a separate and distinct role which interacts closely with the church. God made national Israel many specific promises that He intends on keeping with them. Because the storyline of the church is so closely intertwined with that of the Jews, the role of Israel in the end times prophecy should be carefully studied for clues of what will happen to the church. Next, and perhaps most importantly, those who say that they can lose their salvation will need to look elsewhere for proof just as those who say only spirit-filled Christians or good Christians will be raptured and the rest left behind. This parable simply cannot be used for supporting those positions when properly understood. A subtle significance of this parable is that the church, though not mentioned here, is obviously present in the role of the bride. This is an example of one of those times when God revealed something ahead of time, in this case through Jesus during the Olivet Discourse, which would only be completely understood after the mystery was later revealed to the church through the Apostle Paul. Well, in summary, the parable of the ten virgins mainly concerns the storyline of the descendants of Israel. When Jesus returns to this earth, it will be as king. At that time, he'll be annexing the earth as a part of the kingdom of heaven, which he will rule with a rod of iron. His kingdom on earth will include a group of people that have kept themselves pure for Him. They'll be supernaturally protected from God's wrath that'll be poured out on the earth. A strong case has been made that the prophetic characters found in the parable of the ten virgins represent the following. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. The virgins, or groomsmen, represent the saved portion of the descendants of Israel who accept Jesus as their Messiah at His coming. This is likely the same group as the 144,000 virgins mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 and 14. Finally, having oil for their lamps likely represents being prepared for recognizing and receiving Jesus as their Messiah. Those that don't accept Him as their Messiah are represented by the five foolish virgins. The bridegroom's coming is synonymous with Christ's second coming. However, whereas the church is raptured at that point, the group of 144,000 Jews who recognize Jesus as their Messiah are left on the earth under God's supernatural protection. Unlike the church, they'll be a group of mortal human beings that will be Jesus' chosen followers on the earth. They will inhabit Israel during the millennial reign of Christ. There will be others besides this group of Jews who survive God's judgment and remain on the earth. They'll be discussed in an upcoming podcast. In the next podcast, we'll talk about another parable Jesus told, the parable of the talents. Until then, God bless, please stay watchful, be at peace, and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at dughooley.com or email me at doug at dughooley.com. That's doug at d-o-u-g-h-o-o-l-e-y.com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.